Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And this is another episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast series. Today, I'm very happy to say we have Tyler Stovall on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea. It's just out, I mean just out, from Princeton University Press, uh, I think this month. And uh, I've read the book. I was very, how to best put this? It was kind of shocking to me, to be quite honest with you, that, that I had missed all this. And in my own academic training, I took a course on the Enlightenment when I was in college. This was in the late 80s when dinosaurs rocked the earth, and none of this was covered. Tyler, I hear you laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Tyler, let me, let me say, let me say uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Marshall. It's nice to meet you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I'm a historian. I'm one of those terrible people that are attacked in the 1776 project that was just released by the Trump administration. But we could talk about that at another time. Um, I've always enjoyed history. I was trained at the University of Wisconsin, and I've spent most of my career teaching in the University of California. And I've just left California to take a new position as Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Fordham University uh, in New York. So I'm enjoying this new change. I'm not enjoying dealing with it in a COVID situation. Right. But nonetheless, it's great to be in New York and it's great to have a, a chance to explore something new. Yeah. Are the students at Fordham back on campus? They're not. We actually don't start back till February 1st. Oh, okay. All right. right. I so, wondered about that. Yeah. yeah. We're, yeah, you know, just, yeah. everybody's dealing with all this stuff. So, yeah. I think it's important to mention in these interviews that it is the time of COVID because I always, I tell my kids this, I say, remember this, because this is like a historic event and, you know, you're going through this thing and this interview is being conducted uh, in a significant day in the, in the history of our nation. Uh, I should say that as well. So, um so can you tell us why you wrote the book, White Freedom? What moved you to write this book? Okay, well, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of sometimes dealing with an idea that just won't leave you alone, that you know you sort of wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, and eventually you decide you have to do something more than uh, obsess about it. So I think what really prompted me was this idea that you know, I don't really like the idea of contradictions. I don't like the idea of paradoxes. It seems to me when you're dealing with situations like that, there has to be some kind of underlying unity, some reason why these things that seem to be so ill-fitted nonetheless go together, nonetheless work together. And that's how I I felt about the two sort of basic themes of this book, freedom on the one hand and race and racism on the other. It seems to me that everybody always talks about this as one of the uh, classic paradoxes of Western civilization, societies that are very much committed to freedom, and yet at the same time, practice racism in all sorts of forms. And I decided what I wanted to do was explore the ways in which those two ideas went together, Um, the ways in which they were sort of mutually constitutive, uh, if you will, of each other. And that's where I came up with my thesis. I also was more specifically prompted by an incident that I start off my book with, and that is the incident that involved the Capitol building. Funny enough, I should be saying this now, that uh, the discovery that it was had been um, partly built by slave labor, and how you were supposed to reconcile the fact that you had a building that was many known by many people as a temple of liberty, uh, that really symbolized American self-government, being built by people that had no liberty. And so I followed this whole issue, and I was particularly intrigued by the decision to have a a ceremony dedicating 
part of the building to the slaves and naming it Emancipation Hall. And I thought that was a really wonderful ceremony in a lot of ways. It was one of the few uh, truly bipartisan efforts of the U.S. Congress in the last 20 years or so. But at the same time, for me, it raised some interesting questions, like namely, why would you take a building that was partly built by slaves and name it Emancipation Hall to honor them? Because they certainly weren't emancipated when they built it. Uh, Why not call it Slave Hall instead, if you really wanted to acknowledge their history? And why would it be impossible to do that? So those are the kinds of questions that got me thinking about this topic. And when I decided to investigate it, I, I decided I wanted to do it focusing both on the United States, but also on France. Uh, partly because I'm trained as a French historian and I, I'm, and I am an American, but also because it seemed to me that these were two countries in the world that had really adopted freedom as a centerpiece of their own national identity uh, and at the same time had their own racial histories. So that's sort of how it came about. And that's how I got started writing. And once I got started, it was hard, hard to stop. I really like what you have said about contradiction, because I know even in my own life, and I think we'll touch on this again in the interview, is that I do hold ideas which uh, I think are somewhat contradictory, or someone, a third party, could say that is contradictory, but they don't seem that way to me. I can find all kinds of ways to make them fold into one another, to rationalize holding both of them. And actually, our lives are full of these kinds of things. And uh, in a weird sense, we're all hypocritical at some level. But, but sort of teasing out the ways in which we rationalize things which don't fit into our world picture. I mean, this is one of the things intellectual historians are very good at, and it comes out, it, co- it comes off very well in your book. Um, you, you uh, in the introduction, you do something which I really like. You define white freedom. So mm-hmm. you get brownie points in my world for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> can you, can you don't let us hang and try to figure it out. So what is white freedom? Okay, I, I look at it from two from two perspectives in particular. On the one hand, and I really summed it up with the line with the line to be free is to be white, to be white is to be free. So on the one hand, to be white, part of what it means to be white is to be free. Uh, people who sort of see themselves as uh, having a white identity, a major part of that sense of that identity is their ability to be free. And you know, for example, we've seen this recently, very recently in terms of the the far-right demonstrations in America that people are claiming above all that they are supposed to be free. Um, At the same time, to be free is to be white, but also to be white is to be free. free. Uh, It means that if you are not white, then you really don't have the right to to freedom. If you are not white, um, then you cannot claim freedom as a part of your identity. And therefore, the idea of freedom is really constructed on the basis of of race from from this reading of the situation. So I I adopted that definition because it seemed to fit. It seemed to fit the fact that you could have societies like the United States, like like France, that passed all sorts of laws enshrining freedom. But those laws and the the way those laws were implemented or practiced did not uh, safeguard the rights of people of color. So therefore, freedom, in effect, became white freedom. And often it's something that happens in effect. It's not defined that way, and yet the effect is so powerful that it seemed to me it was hard to see it as anything else. And it's precisely this aspect of it, we'll return to it again, that is a big gap in my own education. 
because I never thought about it like this. I simply, you know, I remember this class about the Enlightenment, and we read Locke, and then we went through the Philosophes, and we read a lot about liberty. I think we ended in Montesquieu. Never was race mentioned once, mm-hmm. I think, in mm-hmm. this class. It was a great class at a great college. I really appreciate and admire the people that taught me, but it just wasn't something that was discussed. Well, if, if I can make a point, one of the, the one of the things I discovered in writing the book, which I really enjoyed, I was really fascinated by, was uh, the story of Mozart's uh, magic flute. Uh, I had never known that the magic flute was about a slave revolt, right? And it was about the triumph over uh, rebel slaves of uh, a sense of enlightenment and freedom, right? Um, and then you throw into the the mix the fact that this was also happening in real time, the same as the same time as the revolution and what was to become Haiti, the Sandabang revolt. Uh, they were about a month apart, but in real time, given that it took two months to cross the Atlantic, they were happening at the same time. Um, and as I say, at one point, Monostatos, who's the leader of the slave revolt in the Magic Flute, had his ultimate revenge in Saint-Domingue in Haiti. Right, that's where he succeeded. And yet, nobody talks about Mozart opera in these terms. At least I had never heard about it, talked about it in these terms. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Again, it's kind of unearthing the thing that is not discussed uh, because other themes seem to be to the audience. Let's just leave a blank there, whoever the audience is, uh, although we can be sure that it was predominantly white, mm-hmm. is interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, again, uh, kudos to you. You begin the book, the first chapter, by talking about two kinds of freedom or freedom among two groups of people mm-hmm. that I, I found unusual but telling, and they are children and pirates, and you describe mm-hmm. these as kind of savage freedom. This is a kind of an odd place to start, but it, it works very well in the book. Can you talk a little bit about those savage freedoms? Sure, and you know, I start the chapter with one of my favorite readings, Peter Pan, um, which in many ways is about both, about the world of pirates, but also about the world of children, about how people transcend those and what they give up in transcending those. But yeah, I was interested in looking at the ways in which the idea of freedom had to be made respectable, because as I talk about also in the introduction, both free- freedom actually has its negative connotations. All you have to do is look at words like libertine, for example, or anarchist, to see that freedom can, can be seen as a negative, value, just as race can be seen as positive. So I was interested in seeing how freedom got to the point where it was established as a positive value. And it seemed to me it did so by uh, limiting or casting out certain aspects of what it meant to be free. And I looked at piracy and children because it seemed both were in different ways aspects of the negative vision of freedom that had to be overcome. Uh, Piracy by being suppressed and children childhood by people growing up out of childhood. Uh, at one point, I think it's John Stuart Mill said that freedom was basically uh, for the mature races. And he meant that in, in racial terms, but also you could apply it literally to the idea of childhood, that children have to grow up to be free. And that means accepting the limitations that create a, a, a free society in liberal, uh, in, in, liberal cap, in liberal capitalist world. So, and that one of the major groups that is seen as both uh, free and also embodying a negative kind of freedom is adolescence, the whole idea of teenage rebellion. Uh, and the idea is that, well, it has to be suppressed, but ultimately people have to grow out of it. And I was also interested in piracy and pirates because they have also been romanticized. Uh, as, a, as a kind of wonderful example of being free, you, you know, especially the piracy, pirates of the Caribbean, you live to be 
do whatever you want. You live in a lush, natural environment. I even mentioned the children's book, Pirates Don't Have to Change Diapers, right? (laughs) (laughs) In other words, pirates can do whatever the hell they want, right? They're free. But ultimately, that kind of freedom has to be suppressed. And it is not a part of white freedom. And as a result, you get both groups in different ways being racialized. And uh, people that are no long, can no longer be truly a part of the free world that is being constructed by modernity. So, um, yeah, you're right. I think it wasn't a sort of unusual way to start the book. And yet I wanted to look at the ways, the ways in which freedom is defined and make the point that freedom, not all types of freedom are acceptable in terms of what I was calling white freedom, that certain kinds of freedom that ultimately are seen as savage or black freedom, if you will, have to be suppressed for white freedom to survive. Yeah, the word license came to mind, the way we use the word license today, like license exactly. is not the same as freedom. Uh, it's it's a bad freedom. It's a and, bad freedom or the, the the idea of the libertine, for example. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a very good example. Um, then you go on in the book for, to tell a fascinating story about the Statue of Liberty, which uh, I should say, of course, I did not know. Um, what, what is the racial history? You call it racial history of <laughs> mm-hmm. the Statue of Liberty. Well, there, there's a couple of things. First of all, most Americans are not aware of the fact that one of the major inspirations the French had for for uh, creating the statue and giving it to the United States was to celebrate the end of slavery. That it was not originally built to have anything at all to do with immigration because it preceded the main period of, of foreign European immigration to the United States. Instead, it was supposed to symbol the, the idea that America was finally the land of the free, that it was a land that had abolished slavery. Um, and that's what its creators intended. There's also ways in which it has, another racial history it has really goes into French politics. The, the idea that the Statue of, of Liberty is a kind of, a kind of version of the woman in revolt. Uh, the, the, the whole character of Marianne, for example, who was a female uh, prototype, who in many ways was the model for the Statue of Liberty. And yet if you look at the contrast between these two images, first of all, there's a, uh, the Delacroix's famous painting of Marianne, it shows a woman in revolt. She's bare-breasted, she's carrying a rifle, she's in motion, she's leading an army. The Statue of Liberty, on the other hand, is fully clothed, uh, pristine, modest, uh, stationary, right? So there, there's that uh, example of it. The, uh, the Statue of Liberty does include uh, chains, at her feet, but of course, unless you're in a helicopter, there's no way you're ever going to see those chains. So the the relationship to uh, anti-slavery has been uh, deliberately suppressed with the statue, both uh, partly by those that made it, but in particular by those that received it in the United States after the Civil War. So there's that. And the other thing I found that was really fascinating is people look at the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of immigration. And yet at the time, Many Americans saw it as a symbol of the exact opposite, a symbol of the rejection of immigration. Uh, my book includes a, an image that shows the Statue of Liberty shrinking, literally shrinking back in horror from all these dirty European immigrants. Um, and so it was seen as something that was trying to guard the gates against the immigrant hordes of the late 19th and early 20th century. What I've argued that is what the, the Statue of Liberty symbolizes is not so much a reception of immigrants, but rather of their Americanized children, or to put it another way, their children and descendants who have become white. So what the Statue of Liberty holds out to immigrants is the promise of whiteness, in effect. And ultimately, it only holds... Yeah. 
I was going to say, yeah, this is a great irony that we've sort of forgotten the, the history of the statue itself and its association with uh, essentially the fight against slavery. And as you also pointed out, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this, is that at the time, there were a lot of people that were arguing on a racial basis that we should, we Americans, should accept certain kinds of immigrants and not others. Mm -hmm. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at... American history in the 19th century, they were before the great wave of immigration at the end of the century, there were really two types of people, or actually three types. I mean, Anglo-Saxons were far and away the largest group, but there were also Germans and um, Irish, right? The Germans fit in, fit in easily. They were Protestants. They generally had no problems, uh, except during World War I, for example. Uh, the Irish, on the other hand, had lots of problems, and they were often seen as, there are many representations in the early 19th century of them as basically black, as basically savages and undesirable, and that changes over time. And then by the end of the 19th century, when you have people from Southern and Eastern Europe coming in, they are generally seen as undesirables. There's a wonderful image, uh, a newspaper cartoon from the time that shows the, the Statue of Liberty as a defenseless woman being threatened by an Italian-looking anarchist with a bomb. So the Statue of Liberty was seen as this woman that had to be defended from the, these immigrants. Um, but I think if I could flash forward a bit, fr flash forward a bit gradually, uh, <laughs> this view of immigrants changes, and it changes really by the 1930s. Emma Lazarus's poem, for example, which is put at the base of the Statue of Liberty is pretty much ignored until the 1930s. By the 1930s, a few things have changed. First of all, you're no longer dealing with massive waves of immigration. The percentage of immigrants coming in is much lower than it was at the turn of the century. You're also dealing with a new second generation, quote, immigrant population. People that have grown up in America can speak English, uh, are perfectly at home. You're also dealing with the political changes uh, wrought by the New Deal and the uh, triumph of democracy and the fight of uh, of these people in is part of America's battle in the Second World War. So you, by the 1940s, you get this whole trend of, you know, uh, what they were often called bomber pilot films that showed a bomber crew that featured an Italian from New York, uh, a Puritan from New, uh, a wasp from New England, a Southerner, so on and so forth, right? All of them seen as Americans. And one of the illustrations I include in my book shows the Statue of Liberty of in a cartoon from the early 1940s during the Second World War embracing lots of children. And the children are labeled Italian descent, English descent, German descent. They're all white, they're all American looking, and they're all descended from immigrants, but they are true Americans. And these are the kinds of immigrants that the Statue of Liberty can embrace. And then one other point to make, I think, which is fascinating is that it is interesting that America's symbol of, quote, symbol of immigration exists in New York Harbor. Uh, and not in other parts of the country. There's no uh, Statue of Liberty, for example, in Angel Island to rec uh, to commemorate the Chinese immigration into America. There's no Statue of Liberty on um, on the U.S.-Mexican border to commemorate Latino immigration, for example. Uh, and there is certainly no Statue of Liberty in a port like Charleston, South Carolina, to commemorate the Middle Passage. And one final thing about the Statue of Liberty, which I actually, one of those things that I wish I'd said more about in the actual book is that the Statue of Liberty and its position in New York Harbor tends to hide the fact that New York Harbor was one of America's great slave ports. And there were lots of Americans who came to uh, New, uh, America through New York who came as slaves. And the existence of the Statue of Liberty tends to completely mask 
that history. And so one of the things I would love to see at some point, perhaps, is another statue in New York Harbor, one that commemorates the slave immigration mm -hmm. into the United States, and one that sort of addresses that part of America's immigrant history. Mm -hmm. You've reminded me of the movie Gangs of New York, which mm -hmm. very, very I, you know, I, I don't know about the accuracy of the movie, <laughs> but it does nicely portray just the distinction you're talking about between nativists, if I can use that term, and recent immigrants, for who, whom from our eyes, or at least my eyes, being from Kansas, all look the same. <laughs> but, yeah. but to them, they were very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I think the fascinating thing about the Statue of Liberty is it does show these different images of America and who gets to be American. But, you know, as, as I argue it, it promises both freedom and whiteness at the same time yeah. and is an example of how the two are related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you move on in the book to talk about freedom and race in what you call the, the era of liberal revolution. Uh, th this is the most, I think, most challenge, must have been the most challenging part of the book to write, at least it would have been for me, because it's precisely in this era that we have these universalistic claims, like you find in the Declaration of Rights of Man. Uh, and, and I do wonder if you could explain to the audience how white freedom manifested itself in this era. Okay. Yeah. No, this was, I think, for me, the hardest period to write because, first of all, this is not my specialty as a historian. I'm a specialist of the 20th century. And uh, so it meant doing a lot of reading and a lot of learning about this period. But it's also in many ways the most crucial period because, as you say, this is the period in which you start to have the idea of universal human rights and universal um, things that uh, are, 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 are the property of all men. Uh, and let me just say men at this point, because it is mostly men, um, but nonetheless of all men. And many of our ideas of democracy and of freedom come out of this period. And yet, as many historians for me have pointed out, this is also the period of the height of the slave trade, for example. It is a period where the denial of these rights uh, based on race is becoming more and more salient. So Enlightenment thinkers actually talked a lot about race. And they did it in terms of trying to figure out what it meant to be human and how humans developed. And one of the things about the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment was very concerned with education and maturation. Rousseau's book, Emile, for example, which is a story of how you educate children, is a classic of Enlightenment literature. But more generally, this is not just about children. It's about also increasingly about different kinds of people and how they, how they grow and how they mature. One of the ideas you get out of the get out of the Enlightenment is the idea that there is sort of a hierarchy of races, and the hierarchy is not really absolute. In other words, people can learn over time how to be fully human, how to be free, and this is an idea that has legs, if you will, because much of European colonialism in the nineteenth century is based on this idea, at least in theory, based on the idea that they will teach people how to be fully human being, fully human beings, fully hu human. Of course, they do that while they're also taking their resources and the land and so on and so forth, you know, but, you know, you got to be paid somehow, right? So, um, any case, the idea that species are different and can progress uh, is a very crucial idea to the Enlightenment. And I think that is one of the ways in which you get this idea that there are different races with different qualities and uh, racial stereotypes blend in, and also racial privileges are constructed out of this, that, that peoples do not have the same rights for freedom or for liberty 
that people have uh, are exist in different situations uh, and their their lack of development, if you will, justifies <laughs> them being in certain situations. So even though most Enlightenment writers were very much opposed to slavery and the slave trade, for example, <laughs> very few of them were emancipationists. Very few of them felt that you know blacks could just be freed because they felt that they would simply uh, lapse or relapse into barbarism. Uh, even somebody like Thomas Jefferson felt that. So uh, on the one hand, you have this idea of universal rights, freedoms, privileges. On the other, the idea that peoples have to be uh, suited to them, uh, trained, educated for them, and that different races are on different st stepping stones in terms of this ladder of overall progress. Yeah, I, this is the moment at which, and you point this out in the book, is that we see a couple of very productive metaphors and one of them is between kinds of societies and childhood that the peoples of Africa are childlike and that it is somehow the mission of the enlightened person to enlighten them so that they can enjoy all the things that essentially white Europeans enjoy. And then the other is this hierarchical notion that, that you can actually construct a hierarchy from uncivilized to civilized. And, and this really has legs and you see it all over the place in the 19th century. Yeah, you really do. Um, and it, it influences science, for example. It influences biology, the idea that there are different sort of biological categories of human beings. Uh, one of the things I keep running back to is Rudyard Kipling's famous character, the characterization of the native as half devil and half child, right? Uh, again, the childhood metaphor. Um, and the idea of, of the, the native as, as evil children who have to be sort of trained to be good, right? Or punished to be good. So, um, so yeah, a lot of that does come out of the Enlightenment. But, but, you know, to be fair, so does the idea in many ways of racial justice. I mean, the rebels of Saint-Domingue in striving to free their island and establish an independent Haiti also refer to the Enlightenment as saying, we are also men and we are justified by your thoughts. Uh, you know, it's, it's true of, of African-Americans in colonial America as well that, you know, they picked up immediately on the signals that uh, the British uh, monarchy was throwing out about slave, um, you know, getting rid of slavery and said, yes, we agree and that we want, we want the right to be free. So it sort of cut both ways, I think. Yeah, I'd be interested in hearing you talk about how these notions, for example, of a hierarchy of civilization that was essentially congruent with or mapped onto a racial hierarchy was transformed into to put this in the crude way, scientific racism. How do you get from uh, Hume or one of the Enlightenment thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment thinking about a hierarchy of civilizations racialized to Gobineau or somebody who says, well, in fact, these people are, and, and I, they didn't use this word, or maybe they did, I don't know, genetically different. They are not like us. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an interesting uh, intellectual trajectory. And I, th I think the crucial... Uh, intellectual body, the crucial body of, of knowledge in this has to be seen as anthropology, right? Yeah. Anthropology, the science of man. And and I say this with some caution. My wife's an anthropologist, for example, so I don't want to <laughs> completely trash the, <laughs> trash the profession. But nonetheless, it is, it is uh, uh, there's a couple things that work here. First of all, going back to the Enlightenment, in general, the Enlightenment represented the application of the scientific method the study of humanity. The, the Enlightenment is preceded by the scientific revolution of the 17th and early 18th centuries. 
And what the, what the Enlightenment philosophers felt they were doing was taking the scientific method, taking the ideas about science that are developed by people like Copernicus and Galileo, and applying them to the study of humankind. So they believed that they were doing so in a way that was systematic and structured to do that. Um, and you get a lot of theorizing about this in the Enlightenment in the 18th century, but it really starts to come home during the, the 19th century, the development of, of, of uh, intellectual fields like anthropology, ethnography, and that go along with increasing European presence uh, in, the co- in what would become the colonies, uh, interactions with native peoples, so on and so forth. So um, this idea of uh, scientific racism, the idea that this is not um, morally, uh, you know, uh, not morally sort of trying to oppress the, the natives, rather trying to understand them, is something that arises out of several different fields and becomes seen as a science. The, the, the 19th century is in many ways an era of positivism that emphasizes the, the, the dispassionate application of the scientific method to human concerns as a way of uh, bettering the condition of all human beings. And so when people argue that certain groups are predisposed to criminality, for example, or are simply not as intelligent as others, this, this is not done at least in theory with an idea to oppressing them, but rather to improving their lot. And therefore it goes hand in hand with the colonial idea of uplift, of trying to improve uh, populations. One other point I wanna make is that um, it is not just people of color that are subject to these studies. There is also a really interesting way in which uh, people look at at the working classes in Europe in the 19th century and and trying to understand why they are uh, impoverished, why they're not able to rise. And there are some of the same stereotypes you get of peoples of color also applied to white working people, notably the Irish, for example, but not just the Irish, um, as a way of explaining why they are, are um, you know, why they are not uh, doing as well as they could be. Um, the idea of different races within Europe, for example, becomes quite popular in the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, it takes a while to get over that as well. Yeah, I really like the point you made about the positivist way in which these early scientific racists, at least many of them thought, because I think it's easy to look back on them and think they were arguing what they argued cynically, that is as a tool to oppress people. But that's not really the case with most of them, is it? No, it's not. I mean, my, my favorite example is Gobineau, France's, probably France's greatest racial theorist, who is, for example, opposed to slavery and the slave trade. You know, because he thought that was an evil way of taking advantage of helpless people. Um, he felt that these people were not a- able to live on their own productively, but he did not feel that they should be slaves as well and actually supported emancipation. Yeah, I also liked what you said about the application of this positivism to categories of people which we don't, well, we think of them as white. And we just did a terrific book on the NBN about German scientists trying to figure out essentially the various groups that lived in Poland. And and they looked at it through a racial lens because this was the most progressive science at the time. And they tried to figure out why the Poles were different than the Germans. And they they were not being cynical about it. They, 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 They controlled a lot of Poland and they were interested in making it economically productive and probably, you know, I mean, I have to say improving the lives of Poles, but they did look at it through this lens of the most progressive science available, which was racial science at the time. 
Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. This is a fascinating book. So then you go on in the book to talk about freedom and race in the era of colonialism, and here that you know in this case that a lot of Europeans are uh, essentially face to face with people who are very different than they are, and they are ruling them. Uh, this had happened before, but now essentially there's a race to go and find people that you can rule. Uh, so can you talk about how white freedom manifested itself in the era of colonialism? Sure. Well, one of the things that really struck me about this, it's one of the great paradoxes that in some ways isn't a paradox at all, was that Britain and France, the countries that have the biggest empires by, by 1900, for example, are also in many ways the countries that are, that are seen as the most democratic. Uh, and France is in particular a really interesting scenario because the French Third Republic is established in 1870. It's established by the revolutionary overthrow of an empire. So here's a regime that is de uh, dedicated to a revolutionary interpretation of democracy. And yet, what does the uh, Third Republic do? This re regime that's overthrown an empire goes on to establish the largest empire in French history. Um, and yet, it's a republican empire. It's an empire ruled by a republic, or as I like to put it, an empire without an emperor. So how do you square that, right? How is, does a regime that is supposedly democratic uh, uh, you know, supposedly believes in popular governance, go on to create this huge empire. And the same is true in Britain. Uh, Britain does have a, a, a king, uh, a ruler, a queen rather, Queen Victoria and then uh, King George V. But it is also an increasingly democratic nation. Um, and yet it has this huge empire. So how do you square on the one hand the rise of liberal democracy uh, because both these countries are liberal democracies by the end of the 19th century with the rise of empire. And what is the relationship between the two? And I think that's what really fascinated me. And it seemed to me the answer was race that, you know, for example, France had an empire to be a citizen was to be white, essentially to be a subject was to be non-white. And the same was true in uh, Britain. And that was one of the points in which I really wanted to look at the ways in which race and democracy or race and freedom uh, go together and are mutually constitutive of each other. And then if you look at the French Empire, of course, the idea is, well, the, the idea of assimilation, of training the, the, the natives to be civilized, which meant training them to be French, basically. Um, that didn't work out too well for <laughs> a variety of reasons, including the fact that the French virtually invested nothing in native education in their colonies. So therefore, by the end of, by the, end of the 19th, early 20th century, they were moving away from that idea and to another idea called association, which really emphasized, well, people cannot become you know, what they're not. They need to develop in their own steam. And by the way, part of what shows that development is uh, them learning to work in our factories and our uh, productive enterprises. And that's way they will develop their own sort of abilities to be, you know, not free, but at least have better lives, right? But, you know, I, I say that with a a bit of cynicism, but people believed in this stuff. People really felt, I mean, you know, people have pointed out that one of the main reasons for empire was to abolish slavery and the slave trade that, you know, people, Europeans had positions on the coast that they had had been used to receiving slaves in Africa. And then they went up river to stamp out the slave trade at its source. Right. So this idea of improving the, the of empire being in position to improve the life of the natives was really a very powerful one, and one that people believed in very strongly. I, I think I think you make an absolutely excellent point here, and it's one of the places where I think presentism 
can be most dangerous because these people, at least many of them, I'm sure you can find exceptions, were not cynical about this. They did believe this stuff. And, you know, the, the past is not like the present. <laughs> and, you know, it, it is fascinating that somebody of that time could hold these two ideas in their minds. But as you point out, they did this and they did it very easily. Um, you go on in the book to talk about uh, the era of total war, but I just wanted to kind of focus on World War II, particularly because here I, I think that the people that were thinking about white freedom, who were thinking about excluding other races, had a particularly tough go of it because in least one case against the Nazis, they were fighting explicitly racist regimes. We could have an argument about whether the Japanese empire was explicitly racist or not, but this makes it a very, it makes it a very tough, it's a tough argument to try to excuse any sort of racial exclusion when you're fighting people who have built an empire on racial exclusion. How how does white freedom manifest itself in, in this era, the era of total war? No, it was it was really interesting. It was very tough because not only were not only was say the United States fighting a war against Nazi Germany, but many of the people involved in fighting that war were actually people of color. My my father was a World War II veteran, for example, um, and there were millions of people of color engaged in the national armies, uh, the the national forces of the United States engaged in the war against uh, Nazi Germany, a country that, as you say was about as explicitly racist as you can possibly get, right? Um, and so that contradiction surf, surfaced big time in the American armies. Uh, France was the same situation. And it, it's interesting because there's been a process of gradual recognition of this fact in France. But if you look at the armies of Charles de Gaulle, for example, the majority of them were colon- composed of colonial subjects. Um, the majority of them were people from the French colonies in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, um, and that because that's who was available because mainland France itself was occupied. And yet because France wanted to emphasize the idea that the French people were rising up in revolt against Vichy and, the, and Nazi Germany, it's tended to downplay that until very, very recently. It has tended to argue that we were, we were all French, which is to say that issues of color or issues of uh, citizenship were really not an issue, and yet they were. So France itself was liberated, in effect, to the extent that it was liberated by its own people, was liberated by peoples of color. There is an amusing, well, I don't know if it's amusing, but it's (laughs) interesting anecdote about how Paris was liberated, because um, uh, Charles de Gaulle wanted wanted to make sure that it was liberated by by French troops. But course they could not do the job themselves so there was a call for america to furnish troops the condition that america had was that no black troops either american or french could be involved in the the liberation of paris so as a result the paris was actually liberated by spanish republican exiles um, who were sort of a compromise i suppose between a white french population and a black french or black american population and these kinds of situations existed all the time, I think. But yeah, you have a situation where, uh, in many ways, World War II was a race war. It was a war against an, an incredibly racist regime. And you know, the, the whole history of Nazi racism is a whole study in and of itself. Well, it's been many studies in and of itself. But especially in terms of the Second World War, how the war between Germany and the Soviet Union was seen as a race war. Um, it was seen as the invasion of an inferior nation and the colonization of that nation. And it's also interesting to note that in terms of the Holocaust, um, 
some of the worst examples of the Holocaust before the, the, the perceived the establishment of Auschwitz and other actually death factories came with the Soviet with the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union. Something that between the the uh, June 1941 when the Soviets invaded and uh, January 1942 when the Germans really began the construction of the whole concentration camp system, something like 900,000 Soviet Jews died at Germans' hands, right? And this was the ultimate example of the, the, the Nazi-German race war uh, against Jews and ultimately against other people as well. So, um, yeah. And, and even more, I think a very interesting footnote to that would be when the Germans tried to defend this battle against the Soviet Union, they constantly said, and very consistently, that they were fighting for the freedom of Europe. Right, right. <laughs> it wasn't about Germany. It was about France and England and Denmark and Spain. That these Slavic people, they were going to essentially take away our freedoms. This was a constant drumbeat in their propaganda. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. They saw themselves as, you know, Europe being white, right? Yeah. And of course, not all Europeans being Europe. So, because that, that was the part of it too. Yeah. So, yeah. And so you have this, this situation where this is truly a world war. It's the, Amer it's the world's greatest world war, which means people from all continents are involved in it. And the majority of those people are people of color. And what does that mean for the colonial world, for example? Um, one of the greatest examples of that is Indochina where you had the, 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 the Viet Minh who were organized by Ho Chi Minh making it very clear that they were fighting for the liberation of Vietnam and they were fighting against the Japanese, but ultimately they would fight against the French as well, which is what they did. Yeah, this is a great segue into the next chapter of the book and we're, we're about out of time, but I want to touch on it. And that is white freedom in the Cold War. But I want to tell an anecdote. I went to Moscow for the first time in 1984. And I remember my shock when I saw a huge poster of Angela Davis <laughs> at the Institute of Patrice Lumumba. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that about? And, and the reason it, it struck me and the reason it, it, it's an interesting moment is, is that this sort of turns World War II on its head. So now the United States is fighting in a Cold War, a regime that is explicitly anti-racist and universal. We can argue about the extent to which the Soviets brought this into reality, but they were very explicitly anti-racist. And so they were able to use people like Angela Davis to sort of point the finger at the United States. Can you, can you talk a little bit about this era and how white freedom survived it? Sure. Let me just throw in my own joke about that, and I'll try and be brief. Uh, there was a group of American tourists doing a tour of the Moscow subway one day, and they were being told all about how wonderful it was and showing the, being shown the beautiful architecture and so on and so forth. And finally, one of the Americans says, well, this is wonderful. It's beautiful. But, you know, we've been here for 45 minutes and we've yet to see a train come by. And the Soviet guide responds by saying, well, and what about your lynchings in the South? Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I heard that a lot. I heard this a lot. I mean, really? I, okay. I heard it. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's, um, you know, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, you have this massive revolt against white freedom, right? The, 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 the revolt is involved of decolonization and the revolt of the civil rights movement in the United States, and people feel empowered in a way they hadn't before. Of course, you know, given that in many ways World War II was itself a war against race, it naturally led into uh, a war against racism um, after the war. I mean, in, in the United States, the double V campaign during the war of, of African-Americans saying they were fighting for victory both at home and abroad mm -hmm. led inexorably into the civil rights movement. 
And so you have this, this tremendous movement, and it is in many ways very successful. One of the things I argue is that 1965 is a real watershed year, because by 1965, most European colonies have, been, uh, have achieved independence. And by 1965, the major civil rights legislation in America has been passed. And so there's a way in which you could almost end this as a happy ending with 1965. Uh, of course, I don't, because there's more to the story. But it does represent this massive culmination of a, of a revolt against white freedom. Yes. And, and again, we're almost out of time, but this brings us to the present day. And white freedom, despite all this, survives. And it's kind of unlikely that it has because this notion of hierarchies of civilization is largely dead, at least among intellectuals and uh, I think thinking people. The notion of scientific racism has been bashed on a thousand stones. We more let, you know, decolonization has uh, essentially been accomplished. I mean, you, you know, you occasionally still hear from the fringes about shithole nations, pardon me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in the mainstream, nobody believes these things anymore, yet it survives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, let me just uh, end up by talking about the January 6th, a couple of weeks ago, um, and that incident. And it was really interesting to me because, of course, first, my, my study starts with a discussion of the Capitol building. But also, I tried to listen to what people were saying and why they had invaded the Congress uh, and the Capitol building. They said over and over again, we're here to protect our freedoms and to protect our rights, Right. This from an overwhelmingly white crowd that was concerned about protecting its right to uh, to vote, for example, and yet in no ways was concerned about the fact that the Republican Party, which had inspired it, was engaged in massive voter suppression uh, and had been so for years. So the idea of protecting one's rights uh, really bleeds into the idea of protecting one's whites, in effect, one's white to have white one's right to have white privilege. And this remains uh, potent today. I think it remains, especially because there are many people that feel that ultimately all they have left is white privilege, uh, that the economy has begun so much uh, in favor of small elites and have, has left large sections of the population behind. And if they don't have their whiteness, then what do they have? I hesitate to ask this question, but I, I have to. It's a vital question. How do we move forward in this context? I think we move forward in a couple of ways. I think you know uh, the forces of goodness. I think triumphed in the nineteen in the twenty twenty presidential election, and I think we have to move forward with that. But I think we also have to look at what is really making people want to cling so tightly to white privilege, and uh, you know address those issues as well. Because ultimately, as as, as I argue, f the whole point is not just about freedom; it's about what freedom can provide for you. Uh, freedom to raise your children in secure environments, freedom to have a prosperous life, so on and so forth. And to the extent to which those abilities are challenged, I think we're going to continue to have this reflexive insistence on a kind of white privilege. So I think the solution is not just addressing the issue frontally, but also addressing the conditions that cause it to be so important. It's hard to imagine anybody could disagree with you, but I know there are people who are going to disagree with you, <laughs> sad as it might be to say. So let me tell everybody, we've been talking to Tyler Stovall about white freedom, the racial history of an idea. Tyler, we have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Okay. Well, let me just uh, make this brief. I've, I've, I've just transitioned jobs, so part of them moving to a new area and, and uh, things like that. But I have a couple of projects, one that is new and one that is uh, 
very, very new, in fact, just starting. I was long been interested in the whole idea of um, migration from the French Caribbean to France, or what does it mean to be a black French person and how that translates across the Atlantic Ocean and how that changes over time. So that's one topic. The other topic, which I'm really just considering at this point, I've been fascinated by the, the whole position of blacks in Israel, because you have a country that has its own sort of identity as a Jewish state, but also has very small, uh, but very interesting black populations, very diverse black populations, everything from African immigrants to Ethiopian Jews to African-American basketball players. And I'm wondering to what extent and how the idea of blackness manifests itself in that country. Well, this is great because on the New Books Network, we have channels on Caribbean studies and we have a channel on Israel studies. So we'll interview you for both of them when you're done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So again, let me tell people we've been talking to Tyler Stovall about his terrific book, White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea, out from Princeton University Press. Um, Tyler, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I hope everyone enjoyed this interview and I hope you tune in again. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.